Yeah, to to be to be ambassadors of the kingdom, to to deliberately manifest these virtues, and that's what the the beatitudes are concerned with. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are are those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This way of life is countercultural. It's counterintuitive, but that is indeed who Jesus is. He is righteousness. He is the suffering servant. He is the one who gave his life like the kernel of wheat that falls to the ground before it springs forth in resurrection power. It's watering time, everybody. It's time for Apollo's Watered. Podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today on our show, we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. I've had to learn about hurricanes since moving to Florida. I've learned that you need to be prepared when a hurricane shows up or it can kill you. Just a week before we released this episode, the west coast of the U.S. and Mexico has been deluged by Hurricane Hillary and Texas has been hit by Tropical Storm Herald. Maybe you saw a video from Baja or some of the towns in SoCal. Streets have become rushing rivers, tumultuous, filled with debris, scary, life-threatening, chaotic. And those videos are a perfect illustration of the way the world around us can feel. It can be downright overwhelming. What do we do to prepare? How do we take care of ourselves and our families, let alone offer a helping hand to our neighbors who probably don't think the way that we do? It starts with preparation. More than getting the right supplies or having a plan, as important as those things are, it's about the things that shape us, about who we are as we come face to face with the chaos all around. This week's guest is Chris Castaldo, and he shows us that preparation, that formation, starts in the Sermon on the Mount, specifically the Beatitudes. In fact, Chris says that the Beatitudes are so powerful that they offer a vision that invites us from the shadows of alienation into the purpose and joy of Christ's kingdom. I don't know about you, but when I look at the world all around, I could use that vision. And if Chris's name is familiar, that's because he's been with us before, back in episode 119, almost exactly one year ago. He's a longtime friend, the lead pastor of New Covenant Church in Naperville, Illinois, and a great thinker and writer. Conversations like this can happen because of listeners like you. It's because of you that we can do what we do. By listening to our show, by interacting with us via our various platforms, helps us so that we can equip you in your missionary encounter with Western culture. We know that you're tired of the status quo in ministry. You want to see real transformation happen, not just the same thing over and over again repackaged. We share that same desire. Each week, we are committed to bringing you the best and most important voices that can equip you in your missionary encounter. But it can't happen without your involvement and support. We're looking for watering partners that can help us so that we can help you water your world. If you are a watering partner, thanks for your support. If you aren't yet, what are you waiting for? Partner with us today. Click that link in your show notes and know that you are blazing a trail, enabling real transformative ministry to take place. Now, let's get to my conversation with Chris Castaldo. Happy listening. 
Chris Gustaldo, welcome back to Apollo Swatters. Thanks, Travis. Great to be with you. It's good to see you again, my brother. How are you? I'm doing well. Yeah. Nice summer. Enjoying the photos that you're posting on social media. Speaking of photos on social media, that would be you. You were in like Italy and London. You were on the Castaldo European tour. How was the Castaldo European tour? Yeah, it probably looked painfully stereotypical, all the Italianness. It was a delight. Two weeks with the family, nine days doing research for a book on the Italian Reformation throughout Italy, and then over to London for a few days. It was a blast. Well, in light of your Italian vacation, this Fast Five is all Italy. Just for you. It's all Italian. Oh, so are you ready for the Fast Five? Okay, Let's do it. Easy one. The number one Italian dish that you love is what? Yeah. Man. Pasta fignocasada. Which is? It's a Sicilian dish. Describe it because I don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pasta with fennel and sardines, which I know sounds dreadful, but it's delicious. You'll have to take that uh, by faith. I'll take it by faith. Anything with sardines never sounds good. I don't know care what it is. That's me. Yeah. But because it's Italian, I will reserve judgment because I do know that there are many things that may not sound as great, but they actually do taste as great. Okay, here's the second question. The best place you visited in Italy was where and why? Yeah, I went to the Piedmont area. Northwest, where the Waldensians lived, renewal group from the 13th century that joined the Reformation in the 16th. And we went to a cave where they would gather for worship, where they read the Bible by candlelight because the Inquisition would not permit them to gather, and where many of them eventually gave their life. And uh, we sang hymns in there. And it was inspiring to think of the men and women and young people who had gathered in that place so many years ago. Um, I had been to the Vatican shortly before that, looked up at the gilded ceilings of Alexander VI, all of the gold, but none of that could compare with the, the wonder of God's people meeting in this very austere and uh, off the beaten path place. Mm, I like the fact that that's off the beaten path. That's one that I, hadn't, I didn't know about, but I'm very intrigued. I'm very intrigued. And that was in the Piedmont region. How did you find out about that place? Yeah, um, Torre Pelice is an area where the Waldensians had their um, meeting place, their center. And a friend of mine said, you can't study the Italian Reformation without considering that history. So we went there for three days, met with a scholar who took us to the important sites. And it was, it was prophetic because they faced many of the challenges that we face today and many of the same temptations to um to compromise the truth of the gospel and yet they stood firm and so i came away thinking lord give give me that courage help me to to have a robust vision of your kingdom to uh, persevere in the face of opposition that's a very encouraging place that i i want to know more about just based on this conversation but let's let's go to your next question all right number 3 the best italian restaurant you have ever been to in your area is that specifies it because i know you could go back to your grandfather's restaurant in new york and i know you just came from italy so let's get to specific to your area are there any really good italian restaurants in your area there is 
there is, it's in Geneva, Illinois, out here. What's the name? Casa Verone, I believe, is the name. It's fabulous. It's near Third Street. It's a fellow who came from the old country. He's been there now for a couple of decades. And it is the most authentic Italian restaurant I have visited in this area. So full disclosure, I lived in the area, not very far from that place. And I am angry now that I never went there. I never even heard of it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, it's like well, I moved next... away. And now I learn about this amazing Italian place. We were always looking for amazing Italian place. <sighs> Thanks a lot, Chris. Okay. We'll have to go the next time you visit. I will take you up on that. I will take you up on that. All right. Number four. How about this one? This is a little different, but if you could be an Italian car make, what would it be and why? Lamborghini. <laughs> That's we, an easy yeah, one. That was too easy. So we went, yeah, we visited the Lamborghini Museum, which is just outside Bologna. I thought, you know, after dragging my children through these cathedrals and Renaissance museums, I, I needed to bring them there. And it was marvelous. <laughs> I'm biased having had that experience, but it would be Lamborghini. Uh, all right, here we go. Last question then, based on the Fast Five. If you could be one city in Italy, what city would you be and why? That's a hard one. So we went to Naples. Yeah, we went to Naples. My first time there. Half my family's from Naples. It's chaos. It's a zoo. But it is so endearing at the same time. And I came away thinking, this is... Simul Ustis et Peccator. This, this is lovely and at the same time depraved. And uh, I could really relate to it. <laughs> so uh, Naples, Naples is the place. <laughs> okay. Well then, based, that was our first ever completely ethnic Fast Five, by the way. That's the, the first time we've ever done one just with a straight country laying that out. So that was a lot of fun to to have that, especially since your heritage. I love the fact how much you love your heritage and that you talk about it. It comes out in your book, comes out in your conversation. And being married to an Italian, I have a certain affection for that. But I do want to talk about your newest book that came out with Crossway called The Upside Down Kingdom. Now, I remember you telling me about this right when it was getting ready, actually long time before it came out. The Upside Down Kingdom, Wisdom for Life from the Beatitudes. Now, why did you feel the, the, just the burden to write about the Beatitudes? It's not a subject that, I mean, it's been a subject that's been done historically, but not something that's been done a whole lot recently. Why now? Yeah, well, you're right about that. And most of the Books on the Beatitudes have been written by Roman Catholics. Um, for me, it was an outgrowth of my experience pastoring these last three years. Someone has said pastoral ministry is the art of disappointing people at a rate they can absorb. And as you well know, uh, the absorption rate has been rather thin over the last three years. So, you know, here I am trying to understand what does faithfulness look like? You get, a, you get an email in the morning saying, there's blood on your hands because you're gathering people for worship during COVID. You're putting people's lives in peril. And then later that afternoon, you get another message from someone saying, you know, the fact that we have any mitigation policies is evidence that we don't trust God, that we're bending the knee to the governor. And there you are as the pastor pulling your hair out. So it was in the midst of that, I read the Sermon on the Mount 
and found, particularly in the Beatitudes, a solvent for my fear and apprehension and doubting. So that led to a study that led to a preaching series that in due course became the book. When we talk about the kingdom, especially the Beatitudes are set within that idea of kingdom. Why do we have such a limited view of what it means to be a part of God's kingdom? Well, you know, uh, you and I went to Gordon-Conwell. We we studied under David Wells, who said, uh, worldliness is anything in culture that makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. Uh, That's where we live. The the gravitational pull of this world is is constantly tugging on us. And and what that does is it causes us to, to lower our sights from the horizon, to forget who God is to see the, the norms here in the city of man as proper and good. That's my goal. That's my objective. And, uh, you know, the message of scripture, particularly Sermon on the Mount, is lift your eyes above the horizon. See the king. Uh, the king is advancing his kingdom in this world through us, through the church, with all of our in, imperfections and issues. And so I think it grows out of the reality that we're, we're busy. We get entangled in the issues of life, very normal, and, but and we forget. We forget what scripture says. We forget the promises of God. Why, why do we forget, though, the kingdom? I mean, you, you have clearly put the Beatitudes in this idea of the kingdom, and we, I, I love your quote on David Wells. I've used that I don't know how many times. But when we talk about the Beatitudes, I find that many people, are, they give a tacit nod to it, maybe even a, yeah, an acknowledgement. But when it comes to the countercultural part of it, they seem to be heavily resistant and they don't even like to think about the kingdom. They'd rather just think about Jesus and me. It's very privatized, uh, individualized salvation without an understanding of what it means to be a participant within the church and in the kingdom. So why do we have such a limited view of the kingdom? Yeah, we, we want to be glorious. We want to be great uh, in Florence. They have the David, Michelangelo's David statue, which I learned is, is actually 17 feet tall. The Italians call it il gigante, the giant. Think about that for a moment. Little David, who slew Goliath, is the giant. That's what we do when we make a David statue, right? And, and that's a reflection of our heart. <laughs> we want to be great and glorious. And I think that naturally leads us away from the biblical vision of the kingdom. So how do we, I don't want to say, how do we recover a vision of the kingdom? You've, you've clearly done that within the book by addressing the Beatitudes. But here's my question. You, you, when you write about the Beatitudes, you kind of captured us right from the very beginning. And you said that the Beatitudes pour gasoline on our contemporary ideals and then light the match. <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean by that? Yeah. Well, I, I serve in Naperville, a Western suburb of Chicago, as you know. I sometimes call it the Achievatron. It's where... We begin to prepare our children for the SAT exam at age six, where Park District sports is a prelude to the major leagues. Like, we're so driven. It's all about success. It's all about achievement. And the church has a version of that. You know, Norman Vincent Peale famously said, whatever the mind of man can believe and conceive, it can achieve. Now, we might not espouse the positive thinking ideology of Peale. But I'll tell you what, that mindset is alive and well in the church, even in our circles that seeks to maintain a biblically chaste understanding of God. And so I I think that's the the challenge we're up against. And the 
the solution on one level is, is simple. It is to give our mind and our heart to the message of scripture to recognize in each new day that Christ is present and to ground our identity and calling in that reality that is the kingdom. Uh, it seems to me that's the leading edge of who we are and what we're called to do. The kingdom, to keep that perspective? Yeah, to, to, be, to be ambassadors of the kingdom, to, to deliberately manifest these virtues. And that's what the, the Beatitudes are concerned with. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are, are those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This way of life is countercultural, it's counterintuitive. But that is indeed who Jesus is. He is righteousness. He is the suffering servant. He is the one who gave his life like the kernel of wheat that falls to the ground before it springs forth in resurrection power. So, yeah, this is what I think the Beatitudes is teaching us, that there is something very different about Christ's kingdom that we must grasp if we are to represent the king in this world. So let me ask you another question based on this. I've been reading Goheen talking about the church and its vocation, going through New Begin. You and I talked about this a bit. What we want to do is have a missionary encounter with Western culture. But the Western culture is one of the most pervasive, dangerous, and syncretistic cultures that it can combine with anything. When you take the counterintuitive nature of the kingdom, these ideals of dying to self, poor in spirit, but you juxtapose that with these American ideals of achievement, status, even in the church, we've Christianized it. And that's that syncretistic nature. How do we help recover this idea that the Beatitudes bring out the counterintuitive nature in a culture that does nothing but award winners? And that means by numbers, by prestige, by status, social media following. How do we do that when we feel that we're in danger of being left behind and considered, I think, one of the most, I don't want to say egregious sins toward a pastor, but being deemed irrelevant? How do we do that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it has to do with our identity in Christ. Uh, a great example of this is, is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. When he established the Confessing Church Seminary at Finkelwalde, he used the Sermon on the Mount as his curriculum. And he emphasized the importance of confessing sins to one another. Um, the theology of the cross was central. And, and the Beatitudes became the lens by which he understood that. Now, Bonhoeffer received a lot of flack for that. Uh, Karl Barth, for example, accused him of starting a Catholic monastery of yeah, sorts monastic because of its that. rigor. Yeah. 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 Because of the, the, the uh, disciplines of faith that were part of that uh, school. And here was Bonhoeffer's response. This cultural moment in which we live has such um, irresistible temptations, Nazism and the use of media come at us with such force that we must go as deep as we possibly can if we're going to stand firm in the face of that temptation, I believe we're in that kind of moment now. You mentioned media, where there are these values. It, it, it's not Nazism, but it's another kind of idolatry. It's an idolatry of the self that tempts me in a hundred different ways every day to find glory and splendor in the 
the projection of my own image instead of the image of Christ. And the way to deal with that, I think uh, Bonhoeffer got right, is to go as deeply as we can and the Beatitudes get us there. They're, they're like a, a plowshare that, that carves into our heart to reveal all the illicit attachments. And once we get perspective on that, that idolatry, then by God's grace, the resources that he provides in word and spirit, we can deal with those items. talk about this idea of, I mean, the Beatitudes bringing this idea of hope. You actually had said that hope is a form of poverty, which really kind of made me turn my head. Why is hope a form of poverty? Yeah, because hope believes the promise of God. It looks forward in anticipation of what God will do according to his promise, but it doesn't see it. It doesn't apprehend it yet in a tangible way. Um, Abraham looked forward to the city whose maker and builder was God. Uh, he wandered through the land of promise. Uh, that's hope. And uh, it's a firm hope. Why? Because it's grounded in God's promise. And yet it's a form of poverty in as much as we don't yet apprehend it. And we're having to rely on God. Uh, someone has called it a dominion of dependence. We trust God we depend on him, we rely on him, and we do so in hope. And so I think that's the spirit that Jesus has in view when he describes the one who is poor. Um, it's not relying on one's own abilities. It is rather being honest that we are bereft of, of those resources of spirit and we're wholly dependent on God for them. Going back for a moment, you were talking about different churches in this current cultural moment. And in one of the things you wrote, I wanted to bring this out because you said the problems in our current society are compounded by, and you, you wrote this, I'm going to kind of quote at length here, the way churches sometimes strive toward prominence, emotional or effective marketing campaigns often use technology in ways that engage people at visceral rather than cognitive levels, video filters, lighting, Fog machines, pacing, and musical chords are employed to stimulate a euphoric eye that increasingly struggles to accommodate the impoverished spirit. Add to this a corporate model of ministry that defines success by numerical, numerical growth and nurtures larger-than-life celebrity pastors, and it's no wonder that we have a problem with authoritarian and abusive leadership styles that cause churches to rise and fall. Wow. So, I know that we have people out there that are listening and saying, whoa, you just kind of hit them right between the eyes with this 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 very countercultural idea. And I, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm in full agreement. I actually visited a church on Sunday and I said, this isn't the church with us when I signed when I saw them shine a light on a disco ball and it goes all around the church. And I was like, where is this about the majesty of God, the, the vision of God? What is this doing? And it seems to me that we're manufacturing joy. We're trying to manufacture change. And yes, we're to be celebrated people. But this, this idea that we see within the Beatitudes seems so countercultural to the modern ministry methods that we have employed. 
how does the how does how do these offer a corrective to that? And how do we help show people that? Because they would say, well, the end justifies the means. We got people here, they're getting saved, they're getting baptized. How do we respond to that? Because it almost seems that we're stuck in a traditional, I don't want to say legalism, but a traditional form that seems to counteract what the spirit is doing. How do we respond? I may sound like a Luddite there or traditionalist. And it's true. You know, I pastor a a church that has stained glass windows and an organ. So I'm situated and it's, it's always good to put, make that clear, be honest. Um, I, I don't, have an ax to grind against contemporary music or the celebratory approach in worship. Goodness, we, we who have the greatest news in the world should be excited. And (laughs) Paul has more than a little to say about joy, you know, read Philippians. The, The problem though, is this entertainment performance approach that, you know, it's, it's almost like you can hear the, the Lego soundtrack in the background. Everything is awesome. It's always positive. It's always encouraging. And it's it's not informed by a a sober minded suffering servant cross shaped Christianity. Those things need to go together. And so, do we have a place for lament in our worship service? Are we honest about our struggles uh, as preachers? Now, I realize you need to do that in a dignified way. But if you're the hero of every story, <laughs> there's a problem. You know, there are ways of expressing that, you know, we're in this together, folks. And, and so I think there's opportunity for us to reflect on how the Beatitudes come to bear in worship, in our liturgy, so that our fellowship, our singing, all that we do together in the name of worship reflects the breath of of emotions, of um, gifts that God intends for his people. Is it all right if I stay today? Is it all right if I stay today? Take my time far behind Leave my pride Oh, is it alright if I stay? Looking at that, this fully orbed understanding in our liturgy, because our liturgy in some ways form us. Words make worlds. Their practices actually shape our hearts. And you draw attention to that by talking about lament. And you mentioned the necessity of relearning mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. Why is it so important to remember mourning when we seem to have more anxiety? I mean, you even draw out this idea of, of Jonathan Edwards thinking about his own death. And I, it came to my mind, the book of Ecclesiastes that it's better to be in a house of mourning than it is a house of feasting. You get this idea of awareness of the brevity of life. However, with anxiety seemingly at this alarming high, the idea of thinking about death seems to only compound and make me more miserable. How then do I juxtapose or practice this idea of mourning 
when number one, I'm going to have two parts to my question. Number one, I have a difficulty with that. I don't want to think about it. I'm already down. I need something to get me up. That's number one. And number two, how do I do that when the church that I attend, and I'm saying this as in people, not just like I'm actually attending, I'm saying most people that I know, where there seems to be no room for that, even in the discussion, there's no, they have zero desire to implement something like that. How do I help draw attention to that in a church today? Well, denial is never helpful. And I'm afraid that's what happens. You're right. We are struggling. Uh, I sometimes quote Michel de Montaigne, French philosopher, who said, my life has been full of terrible misfortune, most of which has never happened. <laughs> <laughs> this sort of Sicilian limbic system of mind. It's always worrying, always tightly wound. And, and we can do that. And I think that's increasingly common today. What catastrophe will befall me next? Um, how do we do it? What we, we don't ignore it. We don't binge watch Netflix and, and try to somehow get our mind off it. We, we recognize it as reality. And then we appropriate the resources of grace to deal with it. And that's what Jesus offers. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, there, let's be honest, Travis, there's some situations that involve intractable pain. A, a, a person who loses a child or a loved one who, who receives a terminal diagnosis, um, we, we walk alongside those friends. What gift do we have to offer? Well, the gift of our presence. First, we don't want to be like Job and, and try to fix things that are not fixable. I mean, but Job's some, friends. Job's friends. Job's, Job's friends. Yeah, pardon Job's me. Friends. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Job you. was like, you guys are, you suck. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and I mean, I've been on both sides of that. I've, I've been in pain with a loquacious friend and I'm sure I've been, uh, overly verbose trying to comfort someone. So what do we, what do we do? We bring the presence of God. Here's a story I tell in the book. Um, I have a son who has a condition called hemophilia. His blood does not naturally clot. So when he was born, we had him in this large rubber tube in our living room where he learned how to walk because if he had fallen on the hard ground, that would have likely sent us to the ER because it would have created a bleed. So, um, so the first few years of his life were fraught with anxiety and fast forwarding now to, uh, I forget how old, but he's learning how to ride a bicycle. And, uh, so you can imagine he's got the elbow pads, the knee pads, his, his new little bike with the, with the bell going out and I'm behind him, um, ready to sort of lunge onto the ground and become a paternal cushion as he falls. So we did like a half an hour of this down the sidewalk and, you know, I've got sweat pouring from my forehead. Um, and after it was done, we're walking back to our house and I'm holding his hand. And it was as though God spoke to me in that moment saying, look, if you love your son that much to throw yourself down on the ground, cushion his fall, how much do you suppose I love you? And we know the answer to that. He demonstrated his love by giving his son to die for us. Um, that's the, the extent of God's love. And I think that's where we find comfort in, in the reality of a savior who came to bear our penalty for sin, who understands our weakness and our pain, um, and who now lives. And so we, the, and this is, this is Bonhoeffer too, when he talks about life together, 
uh, he says, we need to surround one another, particularly those who are in pain with this truth. And that's the only way we're going to make it through the city of man together, uh, bearing one another's burdens in that way. What role, though, does in that lament play as we're, we're helping one another, but we have our own pain, so we bring it to Jesus. You give a framework. You actually reference a friend of the show, Kelly Kaepernick. And his framework that he's established, why is it so important for us to have a framework to identify or to be able to articulate the laments and pains in our hearts right now? Yeah. Yeah. Kepik's work is so helpful um, in that he, he tells us it's okay to be honest. We have to be honest. Um, to to ignore our pain and pretend that life is good when it's not will only lead us to disillusionment and bitterness. And I'm afraid, Travis, that's where a lot of us are. We're bitter. Because we have this idea that in order to be a faithful Christian, I, I must be victorious. I must be happy. And this kind of gets back to what we were saying a moment ago concerning the, the style of worship that increasingly predominates. Um, if we don't have permission to lament, to mourn, to cry out to God, we will suffer in silence and eventually become bitter. So yeah, Kepik's work is, is very helpful in that he lays out a few steps by which we come before God and we acknowledge our pain. We, uh, we confess his truth. We do it in community as the people of God. Taking that into consideration, you mentioned community as the people of God. You mention a story of why community is so essential. And you talk about a woman who passed away in Italy and then she, her body was found. But you mentioned that she was loneliness personified. Where we see loneliness as an epidemic level, and I can't remember if it was in your work, forgive me, I've, I've read several different things recently where they mentioned now that, that they're seeing loneliness or isolation is more dangerous to young people than obesity or drugs. Because of that fact, how do we recover this idea of community to help us work out this idea of, or the Beatitudes or this kingdom perspective? How do we do that? I mean, many of us aren't going to be founding a seminary like Bonhoeffer in the middle of all this, but what role should, I guess I'm expanding my question, so forgive me. What role does the church or should the church play especially now when it only seems that the church only knows how to do goods and services on the Sunday morning in the Sunday morning experience. We have a guy in our church who just lost his wife, a surprisingly young age, and he is beside himself with grief. I watched the men of this church come around him. And this was an interesting situation because the, the fellow who lost his wife was not very much involved it was one of these situations where she was probably the spiritual leader. Everyone knew her, but not so much him. But the, but the guys of our church reached out to him, took him out for coffee, invited him to the men's Bible study. And I was meeting with him recently. And he said, I had no idea that this is what the church is about. The amount of love and concern, the amount of texts I've gotten from guys I hardly know telling me that they're praying for me and they're um, they're available to talk. He said, I cannot imagine walking through this valley without these new friends. I think that's what it looks like. I think it, and, and that can be multiplied so many times over. You mentioned youth or, or young people 
I totally agree, Travis. Um, that this is a severe problem now, and and so we have to think about youth ministry in that light. How do we provide a support structure in which these young people are able to honestly verbalize what they're uh, facing, their fears, their apprehensions, their needs? Uh, what they're seeing on social media and have a safe place in which to dialogue about those things. That, it seems to me, is priority one in the ministry of the local church. Is helping the youth understand and have a place, a safe place where they can articulate it. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine being young today? I mean, I'm 51 uh, and I remember what it was like in junior high, high school, mama mia. Uh, and uh but and that was, of course, without social media. And so the the sort of pressure that young people today face is um is of such a proportion that it needs to be the top priority in the local church. Christianity is countercultural. No matter what culture you come from or reside in, whether it's Western, Eastern, Asian, African, somewhere in between, and it doesn't matter if you're a rebel or a part of the establishment, the gospel is going to challenge you. The beauty is this, though. God always has a connection point with your culture, with all of our cultures. There is always something that the gospel affirms in every single one of our cultures. But Christ's call to us, as the Beatitudes show us, won't let us stay on that connection point in safety. God is always going to challenge something in our lives, and he's calling us to live a different way. We are representatives and citizens of a different kingdom with a different way of living, a different standard to live according to. And it's not easy. But as Chris says, it's who we are. And it really does matter. All too often, we resist the call of the Beatitudes because they are, frankly, hard. They're counterintuitive. We want success and and everything is awesome kind of life. But that is very often not the case. Seeing the real hope the Beatitudes offer, learning how to mourn and lament, ironically, counterintuitively, give us a kind of victory. A kind of peace we simply can't get otherwise. That's what the guy who lost his wife in Chris's church found out firsthand. It's the very thing that we need to offer to our children and ourselves in our overly anxious world. Next time we continue our conversation, we'll be speaking about how the Beatitudes show us a way forward when we are tempted toward revenge, how we can be angry but still be Christians in our anger, and how we can extend forgiveness and find true peace. It's an important conversation, and I hope you will join us for it. I highly recommend the Upside Down Kingdom as either a first look or a refresher on the formative power of the Beatitudes. I want to encourage you to become one of our watering partners if you haven't already. And I do want to thank our Apollos Water team for helping us to water your world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Water. Stay watered, everybody. And I'm on the roll.